Good morning, Redemption Tempe. My name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's, uh, it's really my privilege to be able to lead us uh, in, in our series that we continue of uh, looking at the book of Daniel and reflecting on the idols of our day and the idols of our culture and what it looks like to be a faithful presence in this day. Uh, before we dive in, I want uh, to let you know that we're going to Daniel 4. Uh, if you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. Someone's going to come and give you a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and take that one. And then as those Bibles are coming forward, I want you to turn to your neighbors and discuss something. I want you to, to ask the question to each other, what would be, if you were going to get, what would be the most surprising email for you to receive? If you were going to go home today and you were going to get an email from somebody or and it was going to be the most surprising email, what would it be? Go, so go ahead and discuss with a few people around you, and we'll bring it back. Let's go ahead and bring it in. Any volunteers want to call something out? Just a name? Something with money, giving you money. All right, there you go. Well, I think the most surprising email for me to receive would be if I found out that the Nigerian prince who's been, been emailing all these years was actually a Nigerian prince. Now, there's something interesting. Most people are annoyed by that email scam, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, but I love it. I actually love to engage with whoever it is on the other side. And I think they re found out recently that it was a 67-year-old man in Louisiana who was doing it. But um, I loved engaging with it and wasting that person's time and having some humor and just throwing out some crazy gibberish to counter their crazy gibberish. And, um, but there was always this part of me that would be like, wouldn't it be awesome if it turned out to actually be a Nigerian prince? Because if I was a Nigerian prince and I knew about this email scam, I would actually do it. I'd, I'd get on my email and just punch in. That would be the most surprising email for me to receive. And what we're going to look at today is a letter. A letter, not an email, but a letter that God's people in exile received that I think to them might be one of the most surprising letters that they could receive. You see, what we've been looking at in the book of Daniel so far has been a third-person description of how God has been moving in Babylon, even though all of God's people have been taken out of Babylon, and uh, taken out of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem has been decimated, and they're now living in this, this foreign land and, and encountering, uh, they're living as exiles, as refugees. And they're living there, and uh, we've heard the description of God's work so far in the first three chapters. But in chapter four, the book takes a different tone. It's a first-person letter from King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to all the people in the world. Here's what it says. Daniel 4, verse 1, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth... Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. 
How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. And it starts out this way. It's a letter where the king who has taken you into exile is now gushing with joy in praise to your God. He's, he's basically being wax poetic about how he, the most powerful king in the whole region, is actually not the ultimate king, not the ultimate powerful one, not the center of the world, but it is God who is the king. Not just one of the gods, but Israel's God. And this letter gets distributed all around. And it's going to go on to talk about Nebuchadnezzar describing his encounter with God, which humbled him and made him realize that he is not the center of the world, but God is the center of the world. And it's not a lament of defeat. This is a, is a poetic, rich letter of joy where he is calling on them to see how great God is. And in his humiliation, he has found great joy in finding that he is not the center of the world, but God is the center of the world. That he is not the king, but God is the king. And so what a better text today to address the idol of individualism. The, the, the idea that is so prevalent in our culture today that humans are the center of the world and not God. Now, we need to break down individualism a little bit because there's some good aspects of it and there are some, there's a little bit of a development of how this thing came to be that we need to describe before we start reflecting on how the book of Daniel um, applies to individualism. See, individualism actually had its start in the Reformation, and it was originally a good thing. People were living under the tyranny of kings or a part of tribes, and in the, the Reformation, they started to recover these rich biblical themes about the dignity of the individual or of the, the, the person being made in the image of God, having agency, and therefore, it was someone who needed to be treated well, who, who needed to think, who was responsible for their own actions, who could be able and should be able to read God's word, and it was a good, dignity-giving thing. But, like all idols, idols are when we take a good thing and turn them into an ultimate thing. And this idea of the importance of the individual ends up catching steam and, and eventually morphing over time to where it's no longer that humans are created in the image of God and therefore have dignity, but that humans are above all else, including God, and they are the center of the world. It, 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 it probably reaches its peak at uh, the romantic expressionism of the 18 and 1900s. And I, I want to like describe individualism, uh, especially expressive individualism, through a few quotes so that you can feel the weight of this. Let's start with the first one from Ralph Waldo Emerson, 1803 to 1882. That's when he was alive. And he said, to be yourself in a world that is constantly trying to make you something else 
is the greatest accomplishment. Now, what's interesting is that sounds so normal to us, but it was kind of revolutionary back then. Like, that sounds like the text of a commercial that you will see on almost any channel. The most important thing is to be yourself. But it was revolutionary then, and it has become so ingrained in our culture that when you heard that, you probably were like, yeah, that's right. That is the greatest accomplishment. But then you see it developing a little more. When Emerson said it, it kind of sounds maybe a little bit overstated, but then it gets really overstated. So several years later, um, William Ernest Henley, after he had lost his leg, he wrote this poem, Invictus, and he ends it by saying, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. He was saying that if there is a sovereign, if there is a king, if there is one who is in charge of my life, it's me. And he lived to about 1903, just about the time a woman by the name of Ayn Rand was born. And if there was ever, you might be wondering, is this individualism, is it really idolatry? Is it really the worship of another god? Well, listen to what Rand says. She says, And now I see the face of God, and I raise this God over the earth, the God whom men have sought since men came into being, this God who will grant them joy and peace and pride. This God is one word, I. That over time, what started as honoring the dignity of the individual has become a way of life that says that the individual, the, that human beings, especially individuals, are the center of the world. It's all about us and it's all about me. And if you don't believe that it still is taking place today, she died at about 1982, but in 1982, a bunch of people were born, a bunch of philosophers that I listen to every day in every coffee shop, and their advice is, you do you, man. This is every person giving advice at a coffee shop ever. And you don't think I'm listening. I'm not listening to music. I've got earbuds on. And I'm eavesdropping on all the conversations, and it doesn't matter what it is. Should I leave my wife? Should I change my job? Should I do whatever? It's ultimately some version of you do you. You do what makes you happy. Follow your heart. And it's snowballed into what is now called expressive individualism. The belief that, as Tim Keller says, identity comes through self-expression. That the highest commitment is to your own passions and desires. And it may sound nice, but if we dig a little deeper, we see that it's a problematic worldview. I've met so many people who've put their families in jeopardy because they've just quit their job without a plan, cut off their income because they weren't passionate about their job. I've known so many people who've gone into deep debt because they want to travel the world or have these certain things, and it's a part of who they are, their identity, driven by their desires. And we're even in an age where we're so focused on creating ourselves, defining ourselves, uh, saving ourselves, that we, have, we are at a place where people are defining not just their gender, but their ethnicity. And even as I read in multiple 
uh, news outlets this week, there's a guy in the Netherlands who is suing a 69-year-old man to change his age because he feels more like a 49-year-old than a 69-year-old. And he's suing to change his age because he feels like it gives him an unfair advantage in the workforce. And furthermore, it messes up his Tinder situation when it says that he's 69 years old. He is so committed to defining himself that he's saying, you can't define how long I have been on this earth. It's not 69 years. It's 49 years. I am so sovereign, such a God, that I define time. This is behind so many of the affairs where someone says, it was just in my heart. I just loved this person. And so I left my wife and my family and my covenant commitments for them. And essentially, this expressive individualism morphs into a world where we look at all of life and the various options of things in the world as an identity buffet, where we get to pick and choose different parts of, of what the world offers to say, this is who I am. And you see this hunger for identity emerging such to where people have now like grasped these certain labels and identities to describe themselves. I mean, you're, you're likely to run into somebody who describes themselves as a Calvinist, libertarian, vegan, entrepreneur, seven on the Enneagram, who likes to watch Manchester United because they are the unique person who watches soccer and not football. We're, we're going around the world looking at the buffet of things and following our heart and trying to create our own identities, which is creating a weight on us that is probably, it is unbearable. Now, before we critique this through scripture, just a few things I'm not saying. I'm not debating individualism versus communalism. Historically, these are both rooted in a humanist ideology that says that humans are above God and are at the center of the world. Individualism just says it's the individual person and communalism says it's the group. Both are idolatrous, but today we're focusing on individualism. And the second thing is, I'm not critiquing good self-reflection, uh, doing some counseling, some work on your heart, being attentive and aware of what's going on in your heart. Those are good things. What I'm critiquing is this orientation to life where you are like a God who defines yourself, who saves yourself, and your emotions and desires are what define everything for you. And if there was anyone who knows what this was like, the express, first expressive individualist, King Nebuchadnezzar, the guy who thought the whole world was about him because he was at the power, center of the powerful empire of Babylon. And in this letter, after talking about this praising of God, he goes on to tell you about a bad dream he has. It says this, verse 4, I... Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. First of all, we just got to say that that's hilarious language. The fancies of my head alarmed me. And this guy is out terrorizing the world and like crushing whole communities. And then he's like, oh no, I had a bad dream. Like stop all of society. And he calls all of the 
the dream interpreters and the magicians, and, and they can't interpret this dream that he has. He tells them the dream. They can't interpret it. And then finally he goes to Daniel, God's uh, servant living as an exile in Babylon, who's interpreted a dream for him before. And he calls him in and he says, will you interpret my bad dream? Because I'm kind of scared. <laughs> Give me a little milk and uh, tell me it's going to be okay. Verse 12, he goes in, um, in uh, or in verse 10, he goes to, to talk about this vision, he says. Uh, he says, the visions in my head as I lay on my bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth. Its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the, end of, to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. So his dream is of a, a massive tree, bigger than any skyscraper, with luscious fruit hanging off of it, feeding all the animals, providing shelter and shade for all. And then he says in verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head, a, in, as I lay in my bed, a watcher, a holy one who came down from heaven. And this is uh, the word watcher. It has this connotation of like a watchman who's looking out for things that are, that are wrong, looking out for an attack. But it's conveying the idea of an angel sent from God who's been paying attention to what's going on and who, who in this dream, now the dream, the tree kind of stops and it pivots to this, to this angel who's got a message. And it says, here's the message of the angel. Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet in the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts of the grass of the earth. Let the, his mind be changed from a man's and the beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass. This, uh, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that they may know that the, that the most holy rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. So this angel shows up and he says, chop down the tree, scatter it, make it look like a mesquite tree in an Arizona monsoon, just decimate it. And then he says, put these little bands on it, presumably um, they don't really know what these were, but probably to keep the tree from growing. And they, they put the bands on it to keep the tree from growing. And then the angel just stops talking about the tree altogether and starts talking about a person who is going to be, his, his mind is going to turn into the mind of an animal and start acting like an animal. And for seven periods of time, which could either be seven years or it could mean an indefinite period of time, is going to live like an animal, uh, crawling around, eating, foraging, so on, so forth. Pretty scary dream. And Daniel hears this, and reluctantly, with trepidation, he's about to interpret this dream. He's speaking to the most powerful person on earth, 
And his message is that that tree is you. That, that you are like this big empire and this big king and this big kingdom. And that in your arrogance, God is going to cut you down. You might be a big tree, but God has a bigger axe. And then he closes out this in verse 27 by saying, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel likes Nebuchadnezzar. He's being respectful of him, but he's being very serious. He's saying, get right with God and get right with others. Stop oppressing them. Essentially the same message that Jesus gave that said that life was about loving God and loving our neighbors as ourselves. And he says, if you repent, you'll be all right. But if you don't repent and you still see that yourself as the center of the world, and you keep exalting yourself as the big tree, God is going to cut down the big tree. Now, if you were Nebuchadnezzar, put yourself in his shoes. You had this frightening dream. First of all, I don't even know why you needed an interpreter. It was kind of obvious. It's like, there's a big tree, it's a person, that person's going to be cut down because they, they, they think they're a big shot. It, He's probably just looking for a different answer. But Daniel speaks the truth to him. But you think if you're going to stop everything to have this dream interpreted, that you would humble yourself. But he doesn't. Nebuchadnezzar, who I'm going to call Nebo from now on, is going to save some time. Nebuchadnezzar, he's always renaming people. We're going to rename him for this. Nebo, King Nebo, he's, he says this. Verse, or it says this about him in verse 28. And this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months that he was walking on the roof palace of Babylon, so the highest point in his palace. And, and, uh, and the king answered and said, who's he answering? I don't know. He's not talking to anybody. It says, is, this great, is, this, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as the royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And instantly, he begins to act like an animal and wander around the forest and uh, eating grass and acting like an animal. He kind of loses his mind. And this guy who is trying to exalt himself above God and be more than a human actually ends up becoming less than a human. And what we see here is, is, is something that's a, a supernatural judgment in that moment, but actually it does follow the pattern of how life works. That there does seem to be this descent of expressive individualism. That, that you can see the idea of this captured in James 1, verses 14, 14 through 15, where it says... But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. 
It's the idea of like that we have these passions and desires in us. And if we follow the advice of just follow your heart, make it all about you, you be the authority and you do you. There's, there's a, a cycle that happens that ultimately leads to death. And here's, here's the cycle that we see here. The descent that we see here in this passage. There's three movements to this descent. First, we dethrone God, which, which results in us dehumanizing ourselves. And then it results in us dehumanizing others. First, let's talk about dethroning God. When we make ourselves the center, the ones who, who define our own identity and live in our own strength, we're ultimately trying to demote God, to dethrone him and put ourselves at the center. But this is actually kind of an impossible thing to do because you can't really be fully live into the idea of individualism where you define yourself where you have no inputs for, from others, where you need no help from others, where you are the captain and the master of your fate and of your soul. Because even to utter a, a single sentence is to borrow language from other people that other people have developed, which have ultimately come from God. Even to live a life as an adult means that as your entire infancy and childhood you are going to have to be cared for by others, fed by others, clothed by others. No one comes out of the womb saying, I am the master and the captain of my fate and of my soul. I am the one who runs stuff. I am the one who defines things. No, you come out needing somebody to change your diaper. And so the reality is, is that we can't live as true individualists. But true, uh, when you try to live into it, it becomes the precursor to all the other uh, idolatries and ideologies that we've been talking about. It takes someone to say it's all about me to someone to say I'm choosing to step into hedonism and say it's all about what I can enjoy. It takes someone to say it's all about me to say that it's all about what I can consume. And even when you think about the, the clamoring for different national identities and the different tribes that we have, these cultural tribes, so much of it is born out of this hunger for identity that we can't create ourselves. So we go to another community and say, you define me. I'll step into this and you give me a community and you tell me what I'm supposed to say and I will be step and file. I will, I will walk in that way. And so what starts out as freedom actually ends up becoming slavery as you step into these various ideologies. And the only real freedom you have is, which of the various cultural movements will I choose to be my slave master? So you try to dethrone God, and it ends up dehumanizing yourself. You see in Nebuchadnezzar, he's, he, he ends up acting like an animal. And while this is divine, instantaneous judgment, this happens also to us as well. When we try to live by our own desires and our own way, we end up acting like animals ourselves. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says, when human beings try to become more than human, they become less than human. We end up acting like animals when it's all about us. 
We're driven by our desires. And I was thinking, if we act like animals, what kind of animals do we act like? What do you think? Anyone have any ideas? You're all afraid to offend someone's pets. Well, I'm going to do it right now. It's got to be cats. In particular, feral Tempe cats. Now, by the way, if you're a cat person, I think your cat's great. You don't need to email me tomorrow. Um, but if there is an animal that embodies individualism, the fact that I don't need you, it's a cat. Especially a feral cat living out in the streets in Tempe, pooping in everybody's gardens. Yeah, amen. There you go. And, and, and think, think about this, though. Think about how when we are driven by our desires and defining our own self, how we act like Tempe cats, Tempe feral cats. We end up flipping through Tinder with the same prowling mentality of a feral Tempe cat that's just trying to reproduce. We end up racking up credit card debt with the same sort of hunger that comes from the, from the feral cats that are rummaging through our garbage, just wanting more and more stuff. Instead of showing mercy and compassion to someone with a different political viewpoint, we act like a vicious, feral cat who is swiping the claws of rhetoric at a bird of a different feather. And we follow social media trends and things that are going on in the world with the, with the same inattentiveness of a cat who has seen a laser pointer for the first time. We end up acting like animals, less than human, when we try to make ourselves more than human, try to make ourselves God. And this ultimately results in dehumanizing others. We end up treating people as if life is a movie about us and everyone else is just an audience, part of the audience, or an extra. It's no longer about being known and knowing others and being in real community. It's about a public display where people are dramatizing and playing a part from some script that they have chosen from one of the cultural movements. And we end up mistreating each other. And mistreating each other out of what we feel like is a moral commitment. The philosopher Charles Taylor, he talks about how historically people have always left their families. This is something that's always gone on. But we are in a generation where people will leave their families and leave their commitments to other people, leave their children, leave all the other things that they're committed to, and feel like it is morally right because they are following their heart and being true to themselves. My, um, I'll tell you about this. I have a history of this in my family, and I'll give you one example of it. Apparently, apparently, Okay, this is the, the lore in my family. My great-grandpa invented dog food. So you could kind of tell, like, I've got a bias toward dogs over cats. But he, he uh, ended up, uh, you know, inventing dog food, apparently. And um, Purina, he was in business with Purina. And Purina eventually uh, got the recipe from him, figured out his business plan, and instead of buying them out, they realized there were some loopholes in the, in the contracts, and they basically just cut them out of the deal altogether. And they started creating dog food. This is not an anti-Purina thing, by the way. 
Um, but we were not allowed to buy Purina growing up. And his career had so devastated him, uh, had so consumed him, that this was devastating to him. Not only was he taken out of the home because he was so obsessive about creating dog food, but that he, when this happened, when he got cut out of the deal, he ended up committing suicide. And he abandoned the family around him because he had become so obsessed and his identity had become so attached with him as this entrepreneur over dog food. And as James says, that the following these desires ultimately, if you follow it to its ultimate end, give into it all the way, it leads to death. He abandoned his family. Think about the sex, sexual abuse stuff that's all coming out now. What this is, is this is someone following their desires in such a way that they dehumanize another person and treat them as an object for their desire. And what we see when we see this cycle, this descent of individualism, is an attempt to dethrone God. And that ends up making us like animals and dehumanizing ourselves, and then we forget to treat others like image bearers of God, and we dehumanize them as well. And you may be saying, man, is there any good news? We're immersed in this. You see it. You see it everywhere. There's not a commercial that doesn't have this message. But there's good news. And that's where the joyful tone of this letter from King Nebo comes from. We see in verse 34, he gives his conclusion. He says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed, and I praised the Most High. He's saying, His God or the God of Israel is higher than all of the, their national gods. And, he pr and I praised and honored him who lives forever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and the ha inhabitants of earth. And none can, say, can stay his hand and say to him, what have you done? And then he talks about how his sanity was restored to him and that there was a restoration that came from moving this, the, the obsession of his life about his own desires, about his own ability, and reorienting it toward God and how that was the, the restoration. And how much more of that do we have in Christ? Where Christ is the one, as we remember what was said in Ephesians, who unites all things in himself. That this disconnection we have from God, from ourselves, and from others, in Christ, through what he's done in his life, death, and resurrection, we get reunited and reconnected to God, reconnected with who we are, reconnected with our neighbors, so that we can truly love God, to look at ourselves with right reflection and awareness, a degree of humility that looks at the world and says, this didn't come from me. I get to play a role in it. It allows us to serve our neighbors. It restores us to wholeness in Christ. It gives us a new identity. I mean, just think about what we, all the stuff we talked about in Ephesians series. Sorry, I can't let Ephesians go. Here we go. 
Just glancing at Ephesians, it talks about how we are adopted as children. Your identity is to be a child of God, chosen by him, forgiven by him, reconciled to him and to others, given access to to God and his power, lavished with love and mercy and grace and peace. It says that you're holy and blameless. In other words, you have nobody to impress and nothing to prove. That God has welcomed you in and has given you an identity. You are his workmanship, his poetry. He has uniquely made you and uniquely loves you. And instead of having to craft your own identity, he is the one who gives you the identity. Instead of having to, to save yourself, he is the one who saves you and rescues you. And he's given you a future and a hope of flourishing with him. And to truly believe that, creates a freedom because there is a weight is there not of trying to manage and create your own identity and to be self-sufficient and to versus having the stability of a god who knows you and has named you and has said who you are instead of just being tossed to and fro by whatever new menu A new item is on the menu of the buffet of identity of self. What would it look like to be a people who live in faithful presence, who have a a steady, stable identity out in the world that's connected to Christ, who don't need to scurry and always be wondering, what's the next thing I need to do to complete myself? Let me tell you what this might look like. When I was 21 years old, 20, yeah, I was 20 or 21, um, I went to go live with my grandpa. It was a crazy time in life for me. Um, my, my brothers had been involved in a murder uh, on the bad end. They were the ones who did it. And my grandpa was diagnosed with cancer. And I moved to Colorado. I w- honestly wasn't in a healthy place. I was moving there to be the savior of the day. You know, really, my identity was coming from me stepping in to the situation and helping out. So I moved with my grandpa and began to try to take care of him and tried to help my brothers out. But ultimately, I think what I found was my grandpa helped me. Lived with him for five months. And I lived with a man whose identity was so stable that cancer could not shake it. He was strong. He was a strong guy, physically strong. He was wise. People came to him for advice. He was one of the most successful teachers in Denver. He, he taught ESL to, to tons of refugees and had this very successful program. He was a great fly fisherman. He was, loved outdoor adventures. He was a deacon at his church. And all of those things that could be items of an identity buffet were present in his life, but that's not where he found his identity. And as I watched cancer take those things away from him one by one, you saw a guy who had a freedom and a stability that came from knowing and being known by Christ. He was strong, but then he started to lose his strength where he could barely pick up just simple objects, but his identity wasn't shaken. He was wise, but when the medicine affected the way he thought, people stopped coming to him for advice. 
and it did not shake his identity. When he could no longer teach or do ESL or be a deacon at the church or no longer put a little fly on his fishing pole, his identity was not shaken. It was secure and stable in Christ. And all the things that he was looking to, that you could have looked to to get that identity, they were taken away and he was still whole. He loved others to the very end. He knew who he was and he knew his God. And when he stepped into eternity, you had this sense that he was not stepping into a foreign land, a foreign place, but that he had been living in the presence of the king and the kingdom all along. And that he was bringing that to bear in all areas of his life, his adventures, his teaching, his wisdom. And if we could be people who instead of looking to the buffet of identity, trying to define ourselves, looked to the gospel. And it created that level of stability in our lives, of knowing who we are and knowing who God is. We could love others. And instead of bringing meaning or find, trying to find meaning in all of these things, we could bring the deep meaning of the gospel to all of life. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that you have made us and you have made us in your image. We recognize that we are not our own, that our identity, who we are, comes from being known and loved by you. You are our Father. You, uh, Father, have given us our name. You've given us our life. You've put breath in our lungs. You have showed mercy to us. And that the, that the true joy comes and the true wholeness comes from knowing you and being known by you. Not from the many things uh, that claim to be able to define us. We pray that you would give us a sense of your presence, a sense of the wholeness that we have in Christ so we can scatter out into the world and not find meaning in the various things, but bring meaning to those things. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.